All right, well, the, the recording is recording. We got, I know, one more that's going to join us at Media Res. And um, I don't think that's the right use of the Latin. Um, apologies to anybody that knows Latin. Uh, <laughs> and uh, hopefully, I don't think anybody's popping on Zoom because I think we might be busted, like you were saying there, Richard. So, all right. Well, um, we are going to be moving into article number 29. So this is continuing on with our discussion on the Lord's Supper. Um, and, you know, just kind of as a, as a little bit of a, 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 this is on page 609, 609, article 29. So um, when, it, when it comes to, you know, some of what I was listening to the recording last week, and it occurred to me, um, just kind of in the, in the excitement of everything that is this class, um, there were a couple places where some of what I said was a little less precise than it probably should have been. Um, but hopefully if anybody that's listening to it kind of understood where I was going with some of that. And, and one thing I do as much as I, I, I do kind of maintain that some of the hair splitting that has happened over this issue has been less healthy than it could have been like we've attempted at over-precision in some of these issues, I think. Um, I do think that the way our articles describe it are probably the best way if we're gonna get that precise. Um, I think, I, I, so I do subscribe to what the articles say, um, but I do think that some of those, especially Reformation era fights were a little unfortunate. Understandable, but unfortunate, kind of looking back. Okay, so article 29, continuing on with our discussion on the Lord's Supper. This is titled, Of the Wicked Which Eat Not the Body of Christ in the Use of the Lord's Supper. The wicked and such as be void of a lively faith, although they do carnally and visibly press with their teeth, as St. Augustine saith, the sacrament of the body and blood of Christ, yet in no wise are they partakers of Christ, but rather to their condemnation, do eat and drink the sign or sacrament of so great a thing. So th this, is, this is an area where um, it's really easy to see how um, the different camps we talked about last week split, right? So for those who insist on um, either that reformed sacramental eating, that, that spiritual feeding on Christ, or for those who um, view it as a mere memorial, um, they are going to say no. The 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 those who are who are wicked, those who do not have a, lot, a living faith, do not partake of Christ in the sacrament. Um, now, the memorialists would say in the sacrament we're not really partaking Christ anyway. <laughs> but you know, where it, whereas the 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 transubstantiationist or the um, to use, as we talked about last week, a less precise but common uh, phrase or, or, or term, the consubstantiation, consubstantiation, consubstant, that other one, my goodness, um, will very much see that, yes, the wicked do eat the body and blood of, blood of Christ, even, even if they're not having a, a, a true faith. And usually the way this goes is that um, either the wicked unbelieving eat Christ's body and blood, but 
only the sacred symbols. So they don't eat the body and blood, but they only eat the symbols, the sacred symbols, the sacraments, or they eat the body and blood, but to condemnation rather than salvation. Again, we're kind of splitting hairs a little bit here. Um, you know, we would all agree that partaking of the sacrament without that living faith, doing so not in love and charity with God and with your neighbor, doing so unrepentantly um, you, in all those ways, you know, that, that wicked way um, leads to condemnation. We all believe that. Um, but the question is, what happens, you know, and, and this ends up becoming kind of a line in the sand for some folks, like every Lutheran I know that looks at the articles, they go to this one and they say, see, that means you don't really believe it's Christ's body and blood. You know, what happens, the, you know, that's the way you tell is what happens when the wicked partake of the sacrament. And so you don't really believe that it's Christ's body and blood. You're, you're, no, you're not, not much better than a Zwinglian. <laughs> you know, that, that's the way it's often phrased, you know. And, and, and that's not necessarily true. Um, one of the things that Brown points out um, is, once again, the, the church fathers are pretty obscure on this point. They, they don't really get into the details, and it can be really ambiguous in the writings of the fathers, and, and scripture no less so, although there is a very important point in scripture we're going to get to later on this. Um, well, one of the things that's very important, we, we, we really see that prior to, um, really where we start to see a change is in, is in, in, in uh, St. Cyril of Alexandria. This is late uh, kind of right around the turn of the, 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 the fourth century, I believe. Um, we're quoting here uh, St. Augustine, and um, here's, here's kind of, we have the, the actual quote from St. Augustine. So we're referred to, um, you know, the, the, the article alludes to St. Augustine, but here, here's, here's the, actual, um, the actual quote. Do I have Augustine's quote? Well, we have, yeah, so this is actually St. Hilary of Poitiers, but uh, St. Hilary, he writes, the bread that came down from heaven is not taken but by him who hath the Lord and is a member of Christ. So you're only taking part of the Lord if you're a member of Christ. That was, that was Hilary of Poitiers. Um, St. Augustine is very similar. Again, I have, I have a paraphrase, but not the actual, um, the actual, the actual quote of it. Um, yeah, I, I, I did not write his actual quote down, but the, the fathers are obscure. And, I, and one of the things that we would say is that, okay, we recognize through those ancient liturgies, the way that the, that the fathers talk, that there is a change that happens in some way, right? These are not the same bread and wine as they were before, but what is the nature of that change? We talked about that last week. And, and, and I, I think, you know, Brown points out here, uh, he says, but though the Holy Spirit sanctifies and changes it follows not that the change is a change of substance. The sanctification of the elements is to a sacred use and office to a new relation and not to a new nature. Um, in other words, that when, when the bread and wine have been, have been made for this purpose for Holy Communion, it's, it's really sacrilegious to use them for any other purpose. I mean, that, that, that's really kind of the reform point of view. And it's not so much that the bread and wine intrinsically change in their nature, um, our article would say, but that it's been, it's been, its use and its purpose has been changed, and to use it in a for another purpose would be, you know, kind of pushing on blasphemy. And you, you might kind of think of it, and this is this is a, a 
almost, you know, overly mundane example, but um, your, your, your wife's best china, you wouldn't put the cleaner in there to polish your car with it. Right. I mean, that, that, that's, it's what, it's a bowl. I mean, it's, it's, it's a plate. It can hold it. What's the difference? Well, that's for a special use, right? You know, that, that's, and then that's, that's not quite the, the, the thrust of the sacramental use, but you can see the example even in a very mundane way. Um, and, and so we, we have here in, in the scripture, probably the most important place on this is going to be in John chapter six. Now y'all remember that from last week when he talks about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Let's pull that back up. There's something very important here that just doesn't work if the wicked are partaking of the body and blood in that very concrete way. Oops, I pulled up Acts six, not John six. Let's go to John chapter six. Okay. Verse 52, unless, truly, truly, I say to you, or verse 53, rather, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Okay, with this in mind, how can we say that the wicked and those without faith truly participate, truly partake of his blood and his flesh in the sacrament. You could also say somewhere in the Bible, I don't remember where, but if you're taking it lightly, yeah, yeah, that's a reference to First uh, Corinthians in chapter ten and chapter eleven, um, where, where yeah, Saint Paul Paul does say, if you're taking the the supper unworthily, um, it is to your condemnation. You're eating and drinking damnation, and to to which I think what what the answer would be from you know the the, the Lutherans or even from the, the Roman Catholics on this would be something to the effect of well. Um, they're eating and drinking his flesh, but it's not to their benefit. It's to their, it's their condemnation. Uh, but, but John six is pretty strong language here. So if, if Jesus is saying what, what, what we all think he says here, it's, it's hard to see how he would be, how we would be partaking of his, his body and blood if his body and blood always give life. And that, that's kind of the, the way we would, we would approach it. You know, all are agreed, Brown says, that the wicked do not profit, but rather suffer loss by eating the Eucharist. Again, referring to 1 Corinthians uh, in chapter 10 and chapter 11. But then if they do not profit, we, in, we inevitably infer from the words of our Lord that they have not eaten his flesh or drinking his blood. For those who do so live by him, live forever, have eternal life, have dwelling in him, have eternal life, are raised up on the last day. <laughs> So if none of that stuff can happen to the wicked, then they're not really eating his flesh and his blood. That's kind of the, the, where, where we would go with that. Um, and that's, that's about all we really need to say on article number 29, but we still have two more articles on the Lord's Supper. So uh, before we move on, any, uh, any thoughts, questions, comments on eating and drinking this that say the wicked? Sure. Yes. Which put on the joke falls out their tongue. It's 
Um, yeah. So what, what happens if someone, yeah, drops, drops the, drops the wafer on the floor or something like that? Um, my policy is I, I consume it. Yeah. I don't make them consume it. I'll do it. Um, yeah, yeah, you, you sure, you sure can. Yeah, you sure can. Um, yeah, the, the, um, we don't we don't really have uh, lay Eucharistic ministers um, here because we're we're blessed to not really need them. Um, but it's um, among most Anglicans, Roman Catholics, Lutherans, pretty much anybody that sends communion out, they they do train some of the lay people to be Eucharistic ministers who will take consecrated bread and wine, or usually just consecrated bread. Um, to those that are sick and shut in, so um, it's it's not forbidden for the laity to 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 touch the sacrament. Not at all. That's that's not forbidden forbidden at all. In fact, during non-COVID times, most people do, even though they're only touching their own, <laughs> right? So, uh, but yeah, you you could certainly as as the one who's assisting at the distribution, if it falls down, you could pick it up and hand it to me, and I would consume it. Well, yeah, and then the consecration happens on the altar, not not when we're handing it to them, right? So, I mean, this it's it's yeah. So that 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 consecration's already happened, um, but yeah, and and most mostly by our by our by our articles, reservations not something we really should do, except for in in special purposes anyway. Um, so anything. That is left over would be consumed, but if it, if it falls, I will typically consume it myself. Now, there are some people who, um, if 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 the wine spills or something, they they go through through pretty pretty extreme measures. We have fortunately not have we have not had that happen since I've been around here, so I don't know what 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 those measures would be off the top of my head. But um, yeah, especially among among very very traditionalists. Um, the more Anglo-Catholic sorts. Um, I've heard some folks might, you know, cut that part of the rug out and, you know, kind of kind of burn it rather than let let the wine just soak in there and then replace the rug um, so that it's 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 not being um, trampled upon that sort of thing. Um, but fortunately, we've never had to deal with that. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. Uh, yeah, for the recording um, observation that the uh, the lack of change in nature or substance um, has a parallel to the Holy Spirit working in in our lives, and that's that's very true. I mean, you know, we there 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 is a changer change in our in our stat in our status, right? You know, we are we are no longer children of wrath; we're now children of God. Um, that sort of thing when we when we when we're baptized, we're and we're we're and we come to Him in faith. Um, but yeah, that old that old nature remains, and we 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 fight with that, right? I mean, that's that's something that's not going to be perfected until we're before the Lord. Yeah. So the, yeah, there's I think there is some parallels with with the way the sacraments work, the way the Holy Spirit's working within us, and 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 we do in our liturgy in particular do um, see this as a as an effect of the Holy Spirit. 
Um, and, and that's a very ancient pattern. You know, they, they call it in Greek, the epiclesis. Not, now, not all Anglican liturgies have an epiclesis because in the Middle Ages, the Western church just really didn't anyway. That was more of an Eastern thing. But um, that kind of, these days, almost all the more modern liturgies do. And the American church always had some form of it that we inherited from the Scottish, um, the, the, the Scots who were kind of looking at the, at the um, older liturgies, the fathers, especially the Eastern liturgies. So yeah, absolutely. Okay, number 30, of both kinds. The cup of the Lord is not to be denied to the lay people for both the parts of the Lord's sacrament by Christ's ordinance and commandments ought to be ministered to all Christian men alike. So this is, this is one of the really big issues of controversy at the time of the Reformation, and it really kind of boils up in, in, in terms of some of the um, logical implications of the way transubstantiation was developing at the time. So um, we certainly know that in the earliest accounts of the Lord's Supper from the second century on, really up until the Middle Ages in the West only, that um, it was always both the bread and the wine were given to communion. I mean, nobody thought to do only one or the other. Uh, and and the, the exception to that may have been, I just don't know this off the top of my head if, if this is the way things were made, when the deacons would take from the table out to the sick and the infirm, they might have only taken the bread um, because transporting consecrated wine may have been more difficult. Um, our communion kits certainly have a way of doing that. So, I mean, I've, it's not like it's impossible to transport consecrated wine, but it does kind of make how you're going to handle that uh, a little bit more difficult in some cases. So I don't know if they, how they did that in the ancient times, but what we do have is um, there was, once we once we get into in the West, the Eastern Church never abandoned both kinds. They always give it in both kinds, even if it's not very much. I mean, at the very least, they're putting a bit of bread on a spoon and dipping that into into the wine and you know feeding you with the spoon. But in the West, in the Middle Ages, as transubstantiation that doctrine develops, um, if the elements were wholly changed into the substance of Christ. The logical implication is that the whole of Christ, body and blood, are contained in either element. So you don't only have half of Jesus when you're taking the, the bread, half of Jesus when you're taking the wine. You have all of Christ in, 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 in either element. Um, so if one element is received, the Lord is fully received under that one element. Now, as that begins to, to, to build up in the Middle Ages... Uh, and we're talking right around the 11th century at this point. Um, it is controversial. I mean, it wasn't something like it flipped a light and everybody in the West accepted it. It was, it was not without controversy, lots and lots of controversy. But um, by the time we get to the end of the Middle Ages, the question really is settled. And so by the time of the Reformation, you generally do not have the wine given to the laity. It's almost never given to the laity. And in fact, as we're gonna talk about in the next part, the next article, um, the laity often didn't commune at all. <laughs> but, but when they did, it was only the bread. So, and, and part of that was they were afraid of spills, 
you know, we talked about some of that just a little bit ago. Um, that, that was part of it. Part of it was that it was a way to kind of enforce that doctrine that you're not getting half of Jesus in this. Uh, but this is one of the abuses that the, that the reformers and the proto-reformers were, were constantly railing against. Um, so all of the Protestant churches insisted that you're supposed to give it in both kinds. Now, does that mean, and I would say that we must offer it in both kinds. That doesn't necessarily mean it has to be taken in both kinds. Like there are sometimes if someone's sick, they might not want to take the wine. Um, I've known of some alcoholics don't want to take the wine. I've known in some situations where people might have an extreme um, allergy to gluten, like celiac or something like that, they might not take the bread if there's not a low gluten option. We always do have, um, it's technically not gluten-free, but it's so low as to, as far as the celiac whoever oversees that stuff here in America says it's, it should be fine for most people. Um, but so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, but it, but it ought to be offered is, is the point. Uh, and all the Protestants agreed on that. Um, but at Trent, again, because of the doctrine of transubstantiation, they really do double down. And there are to this day, some Catholic countries or some countries where the, their college of bishops does not give both the bread and the wine. Most places in the Catholic world that did change at Vatican II, so the 1960s, um, they did begin to offer both the bread and the wine. But you know, when 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 my mom was going through her first communion as a little girl, they did not. Um, you know, my my mother-in-law, same thing. So, um, and and there's plenty of people who still have living memory of when that was withheld here in the states. Okay, so Richard, you remember those days firsthand. Okay, yeah. And, and again, mostly that change at Vatican II um, with the possible reversion during COVID time. <laughs> but, uh, um, but most places here in the States, they do, if they do offer both um, nowadays, but they still maintain that doctrinally you don't have to. All the Protestant churches say, no, you really do. And the Eastern churches, I think, would agree with us. At least practically, they never give only one. Um, can we look, can we see anything about this in scripture? Well, I, I think the, the, the most important passage is just when we look at the words of institution and the accounts of the Lord's Supper, the way we're commanded to do it is to take and eat, take and drink. Um, it's not take and eat or take and drink. And in some ways you could say that's a bit of an argument from silence, but if we're going to be faithful to the Lord's command, it seems that we ought to do both. Um, Brown has an interesting observation here. Um, you know, he, he says the, in scripture, the only passages in scripture which can be appealed to are those which relate to the institution of the Eucharist. Um, in all of these, there appears to be no difference between the bread and the cup, save only this, that in Matthew, our Lord specially related, related to views concerning the latter, that is the cup, the words drinky, all of it not drinky all of it. Well, actually, no, that is drinky all of it. He's actually doing this a little bit wrong. And a St. Mark, anyway, yeah, so drinky all. So all of you drink of this is what he's saying. And then they all drink of it um, in, 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 in Mark. So the, the point that Brown's making here is if you're going to make the case that you can do only one or the other, it seems that withholding the cup would be the one you wouldn't want to do because Jesus specifically said that Jesus told them all to drink it and that they all did drink it. <laughs> um, I think that's a very funny observation. 
but a little tongue in cheek, um, even on Brown's part. Um, any any further thoughts on Article Thirty, and then we'll we'll bust into Article Thirty One and close out the Lord's Supper today. Okay, and there and the, and their only time we would do only one kind um, is when we um, we we do sometimes we bring it the consecrated. Uh, to the sick, sometimes we it just doesn't work to to do both. So we would do just the bread um, if that's the case. But it's not it's not really the way we're supposed to do it. But it's kind of generally accepted um, that way. Okay, Article Thirty One. This is the of of the one oblation of Christ finished on the cross. The offering of Christ once made is that perfect redemption, propitiation, satisfaction for all the sins of the whole world, both original and actual. And there is none other satisfaction for sin but that alone. Wherefore, the sacrifice of masses in the which it were commonly said that the priest did offer Christ for the quick and the dead to have remission of pain or guilt were blasphemous fables and dangerous deceits. So this is talking about the idea of the mass as a the way it would commonly be, be, be discussed is as a re-sacrifice of Christ. Now, that idea of it being a re-sacrificing, like we're sacrificing Christ every time, that is not official Roman Catholic doctrine. Um, it never was official doctrine, but it seems that at the time of the Reformation, it was a commonly taught doctrine that they did clean up in the Council of Trent. The Council of Trent was very much a reformation also. It's just they doubled down on some stuff um, like issues of justification, transubstantiation that we couldn't really hold to, but they did, um, but they did do, they did have their own reformation. Sometimes we call it the counter-reformation, but um, they, they did clean up their act as well. Um, so, in some ways, when some of the Reformation era discussions talk about, talk against the re-sacrificing of Christ, it's almost a little bit of a straw man in that that was never official teaching, even if it was popular teaching. However, we do need to talk about the nature of, of the sacrifice in, in Holy Communion. Um, it cannot be denied, or this is, I'll, I'll read from Brown this opening thing he says on the history, he says, Brown says, it cannot be doubted that from the very first, the father spoke of the Eucharist under the name of an offering or sacrifice. And that's absolutely true. Um, but there's a lot of question as to what was the nature of that sacrifice? What actually is being sacrificed and what does it mean for something to be sacrificed? You know, Deacon John and I were talking uh, last week or the week before about um, how kind of the, uh, there, there was this argument in the 17th century, I believe, between some of the reform and some of the French Catholics about the nature of sacrifice. And they all kind of agreed that a in a sacrifice, something is destroyed. And so the question is, what is legitimately destroyed? Where the French Catholics are saying, well, Christ's body and blood are destroyed. Well, that doesn't make any sense. I mean, like theologically, it was all over the place. And um, this, you know, the person that, that uh, Deacon John was was uh, kind of referring to, he said, yeah, they, they, they were a Catholic writer. And they said, yeah, the, the, the reformed in this particular argument were right in that 
um, Christ's body being destroyed is not at all what even even Catholic theology would say happens at the mass. He says, but the other hand, the problem is both were kind of dealing with a model of sacrifice that's not really from the Bible or the fathers. You know, they they were they were kind of defining sacrifice in a weird way. And so we do need to define terms here. And what we see when we're talking about um, and the very earliest fathers is that they, they largely speak of the sacrifice and communion um, as being a, um, as the sacrifice being the bread and the wine itself. They don't typically talk about Christ being sacrificed, but the bread and the wine being sacrificed. And then they kind of, they always liken it to the Passover or to the Old Testament sacrifices. And so when they do talk about Christ, Christ in it, they're never talking about him being sacrificed, but rather the bread and the wine. Um, and that's really how you see it in the first couple of centuries. Things begin to change once we get um, into the right around the turn of the, the, the fourth century, um, where you do start to see this idea of offering up in some way or of Christ being in some way the sacrifice. But it's not ever that they speak about Christ being sacrificed, but rather that in communion, we are participating in Christ's sacrifice, if that makes sense. Which is something that we would, we would, we would believe is that that's, that's one of the ways that, that we do participate in Christ's sacrifice. But again, once we start to see transubstantiation happening, they're going to be reading those passages in a different way. They're going to be seeing the witness of the fathers in a different way, where rather than it being kind of a, a, a what the Old Testament might call a memorial offering or something like that, or, or a commemorative offering, um, the bread and wine uh, of, of Christ's true sacrifice, they start to see um, that Christ himself is in some way sacrificed. Now, again, once, once the issue gets kind of cleaned up at, at, at Trent, well, the way they will speak of it now is a representation of Christ's one sacrifice. So Christ is not being offered again, but his one sacrifice is being presented again, if that makes sense. Um, it's, it's, it's a pretty, it's a pretty fine line, but it, but it is a theologically important one. In our own liturgies, we do see, uh, sacrificial language when it comes to, to communion, but really not in terms of sacrificing Christ. So let's, let's, let's turn over to our communion liturgy real quick. This is in the consecration where we page 80 and 81. So we begin with, with this, this phrase, all glory be to thee, almighty God, our heavenly father, for that thou of thy tender mercy didst give thine only son, Jesus Christ, to suffer death upon the cross for our redemption, who made there by his one oblation of himself once offered a full, perfect, sufficient sacrifice, oblation, satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. Uh, and, and did institute and in his holy gospel command us to continue a perpetual memory of that, his precious death and sacrifice until his coming again. So in this case, the sacrifice is clearly referring to the sacrifice on the cross, right? 
And anything that we're doing here at communion is a memorial of that sacrifice. It's a commemoration of that sacrifice, even a participation, we can say, of that one sacrifice. Um, so then we get to the next part, the oblation, where we say, um, we, we do celebrate and make here before thy divine majesty with these holy gifts, which we now offer unto thee, the memorial thy son commanded us to make. So we are offering up to God, but we're offering a memorial. We're not offering Christ again, right? Um, and then, it, then we, we have um, in the invocation, that, that, in that invocation of the Holy Spirit, um, on the gifts of bread and wine so that we would receive it properly and it would be for, it would be um, his body and blood um, in, in that in, in that we would partake of that worthily. Um, and then we have this next part, the, the, the kind of final paragraph on page 81. We earnestly desire thy fatherly goodness mercifully to accept this, our sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. Okay, so what's the sacrifice we're making? It's praise and thanksgiving, right? Uh, most humbly beseeching thee to grant that by the merits and death of thy son, Jesus Christ, through faith in his blood, we and all thy church may obtain remission of our sins and all of the benefits of his passion. And then we here do offer and present unto thee, O Lord, ourselves, our souls and bodies to be a reasonable, holy and living sacrifice unto thee. Um, I'm trying to see if there's any other sacrificial language, but again, what, what are we offering here? We're offering ourselves. Um, up as part of this. So we really have three, three, we have, we have four, four explicit references to the offering. One, we have Christ's offering on the cross for us. Um, two, we have us offering up the bread and the bread and the wine to God. Um, three, we have, we have us offering up our praise and thanksgiving. And finally, we're offering up to ourselves. And we have this finally, final thing here towards the bottom Though we are unworthy through our manifold sins to offer unto thee any sacrifice, we accept thee to we beseech thee to accept this our bounden duty and service, not weighing our merits but pardoning our offenses. So, yeah, again, we we can't we can't offer up Christ's sacrifice because we've already he's already made that sacrifice once and for all. But we do but we do speak of this in sacrificial language. I think I think it's important to point out though that. Um, Again, we, in our American canon here, we have some reordering of things, whereas all of this, these parts with the sacrificial language are things that are prayed after reception in the 1662 liturgy, that kind of classic Anglican liturgy from, from um, that really, really goes back to, oh, about 1552 all the way through um, you know, with that exception in, in kind of the American adapting more of a Scottish approach. But, but yeah, it's, it's kind of that classical throughout the Anglican communion, all of the sacrificial languages after we receive. And I think they did that because they didn't want us to be confused with some of the things that, that happened at the time of the Reformation and to an extent in, in the Roman Catholic Church today. Because you'll notice that in our article, we, we don't refer to that re-sacrificing of Christ. That's not in the article. Um, again, not, not never an official doctrine of the church is kind of a popular one. But what do we do refer to? 
says the sacrifice of masses in the which it was commonly said that the priest did offer Christ for the quick and the dead to have remission of pain or guilt were blasphemous fables and dangerous deceits. That language of the, of the mass being an offering and a sacrifice the priest is making for the quick and the dead, um, for, the, for the welfare of the living and for the repose of the dead, i.e. the souls in purgatory, that's still there. In, in, in Roman Catholic liturgies and doctrine. So they, they are still very much seeing the priest offering on behalf of the people. And that the priest saying mass um, is not for their participation in the mass. That it's, and, and I, I think, or I should say it's not only for their participation in the mass, it's for the welfare of the living and the repose of the dead. It's, it's for the souls in purgatory and for the blessings on those who are alive that might not be here present. Um, that is not the way we look at the sacrifice you know, in, in the mass at all. We certainly don't look at Christ's sacrifice in communion that way. This is also where we get the, the where the laity just aren't participating in communion anymore. They are observing the priest making his sacrifice because it doesn't really matter if they participate. The priest sacrificing for the welfare of the living and the repose of the dead is the important thing, again, at that time. The emphasis has changed, but the doctrine really hasn't, if that makes sense. Um, let's see. I think probably the best place when we're looking at the scriptures on this is pretty much the entire book of Hebrews. <laughs> now, now Hebrews is addressing in particular the Levitical sacrifices, um, but it would be a mistake to say that communion is just a new take on, on those kinds of sacrifices. It's not. Um, and, and probably the most important thing, I, again, we're, we're, in some ways, Brown's addressing a bit of a straw man, but um, that idea that, that that sacrifice would have to be done again and again and again in order for it to be effective, that's not, you know, that Hebrews says that's just not the way Christ's sacrifice is. Again, kind of official Roman doctrine would say, well, this is not a new sacrifice, this is a representation. But it's it's a it's a fine line, and I, I'm I'm not sure it's well well understood. Um, so, is is there something sacrificial? Yes, but it's not in the way that it would have been thought of in the in the Middle Ages. Okay, um, thoughts, questions, comments, and that that's really it for um, the Lord's Supper, as far as articles. Right. Right. Absolutely. Um, you know, and, and I would also point out that that's that's also why you know Roman Catholic priests have to celebrate Mass every day, even if it's just by themselves, because part of their vocation is to offer that sacrifice or that representation of Christ's sacrifice, which is still a sacrifice, and even if it's not sacrificing Christ, it's still. It's still a propitiatory sacrifice, and they have to do it every day. 
Um, that's that's not our position. You know, that's we've never had to do that. The East doesn't do it that way. Now they will certainly speak of the communion in sacrificial terms, but they're not they're not really doing things the same way that Roman Catholic priests are. And that's also why it's okay if from time to time we we have morning prayer rather than communion on a Sunday. Now, ideally, we probably ought to be having communion every Sunday and Holy Day, um, but it's okay if we don't. That, that's kind of the point. We're not, we're not somehow going to be, um, you know, staring down possible damnation or, or, or severe spiritual loss. Um, although it is, I would say, the ideal, and it's better if we do it that way. Yeah, and yeah, and sometimes and, and different different Catholic churches do that differently. Um, sometimes the, you know the priest will kind of have his own just his own private chapel where he does stuff. Other times they will they will have it open to the public daily. Not every not every Catholic church has it open to the public every day. For daily mass you know and then there are some anglican churches that have daily mass i don't know how they work the uh, readings um unless they're using i mean certainly not the traditional lectionary but um but yeah that's that's probably one of the reasons why your, your local church when you're growing up did all right well we'll go ahead and call it a night thank you all um we had uh, this is our only our second ever having to spill over something in two weeks uh, in terms of a particular topic. And we'll pick up with uh, the marriage of priests in three weeks. No class next week because of Ash Wednesday. Um, we won't have time after Ash Wednesday services. And the following week I'm out of town. And so we will not have it that week. So we'll pick up back up the third Wednesday, the third Wednesday in, in March. Thank mm -hmm. you.